0: present The Unbelievable Truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to The Unbelievable Truth, the show where truth and reality mean nothing compared to the art of beating about the bush. A sort of radio equivalent of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> for, this week's, for this week's guest comedians, well, I'm looking at four very big names. That's right, my eyesight's failing and I need a large font. <laughs> Please welcome Tony Hawkes, Lucy Porter, Ed Byrne and Charlie Higson. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five pieces of true information, which they should attempt to smuggle past their opponents, cunningly concealed amongst the lies. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth, or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. We'll begin with Tony Hawkes. Tony is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the furthest distance hitchhiked with a fridge beating the previous best of nobody ever. (laughs) Tony, your subject is pies, described by my encyclopedia as a baked food consisting of a sweet or savoury filling contained within a pastry casing. Off you go, Tony. Fingers on buzzers, the rest of you. In 2008, at the World Custard Pie
1: Throwing Championships, the winning team, called We're Not Keen on Potatoes, (laughs) threatened not to accept their first prize which greatly excited the second-place team, who were called We Don't Like Asparagus. (laughs) The pop group ABBA, who are actually made of pie, (laughs) have recorded over 400 songs about mainline railway stations. (laughs) Their biggest success, Waterloo, was originally called Honey Pie, until they realised that this wasn't a station and immediately changed the name. (laughs)
2: Ed. Abba's song Waterloo was originally supposed to be entitled Honey Pie.
0: You're absolutely right it was. <laughs> well done.
3: <laughs>
0: I, I believe they, they wrote the whole song, Honey Pie, to that tune and then changed it. I bet the they feel la- pretty the laugh, foolish about that now. Oh, it yeah. Have, it would have been a hit otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> the expression
1: as American as apple pie comes from the Greek word plaxos, meaning as American as apple pie. <laughs> the expression easy as pie has no origin. Pythagoras, <laughs> known to his friends as pie, <laughs> loved apple pie and it was on one such pie that he discovered that the ratio of the circumference of the pie's circle to its <laughs> diameter was six. <laughs> The 2007 World Pie Eating Championships were thrown into disarray after the organiser's dog
0: ate all the pies. <laughs> Lucy?
4: Yeah, I'm going to go that the Pie Eating Championships had to be called off because a dog ate all the pies.
0: And that is true. Oh. Well done.
1: <laughs> Eskimos in Lapland, who occasionally eat penguin pie, once had to go to... Des- I, I
2: think Eskimos in Lapland do occasionally eat penguin pie. And if they well, don't, they ought.
1: <laughs> oh, no, they don't. I've just remembered,
2: no, penguins are from the other end of the world,
3: <laughs> they... And Eskimos don't live in Lapland. Otherwise, you were spot on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: These Eskimos once had to go to desperate lengths when food ran short they put ice in their pies, garnishing them with one of their own eyes. When they served it up to their children, they declared, there you go, ice pie with my little eye." <laughs> Shakespeare often included pie references in his films. <laughs> Fruit pies, which hadn't really been referenced in English culture before the reign of Elizabeth I, were mentioned all through Shakespeare's £20 million action blockbuster, Hamlet Three.
2: Sorry, but I do think that the fruit pie had not been referenced before the reign of what you said. Elizabeth I.
1: <laughs> Elizabeth <laughs> I. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Claude, oh, oh, something back there. Time traveller David Bellamy (laughs) made pies in the 18th century and was particularly popular with the politicians of the day. His pies, however, were extremely toxic and it became a sign of great bravado and fortitude if they could be eaten with no harm coming to the consumer. Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger may well have fallen victim to this, his last words being... I think I could eat one of
3: Bellamy's veal pies. Charlie. I do think those were his genuine last words. They absolutely were.
2: Yes!
0: (laughs) Strictly speaking, there, there are two. People aren't sure what William Pitt the Younger's last words were. Some say it's, I think I could eat one of Bellamy's veal pies. Others say his last words were, Oh, my country, how I leave my country. Mm. Now, I believe the veal pie one to me. It's a bit <laughs> it's a bit neat, oh my country. It's to how my I advantage that he said the other one, though, isn't it? And, and I'm sure that was in his mind at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Um, and at the end of that round, Tony, you've smuggled one truth oh. past the rest of the panel, which is that the second place team in the two thousand and eight World Custard Pie Throwing Championships were called We Don't Like Asparagus. (laughs) But that means, Tony, you've scored one point. (laughs) Carl Sagan once stated, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Wise words. But personally, (laughs) I find Delia's recipe slightly quicker. (laughs) OK, we turn now to Lucy Porter. As a comedian, Lucy was once the support act for Puppetry of the Penis. Not that it needed much support once it got going. (laughs) Your subject, Lucy, is dancing. The rhythmic movement of the body in time to music involving a set of prescribed or improvised steps or movements. Off you go, Lucy.
4: We all know that Elton John wrote the song Tiny Dancer about Wayne's sleep. (laughs) But... (laughs) But did you also know that Wayne is a record-breaker? In 1973, Wayne leapt into the air and crossed and uncrossed his legs 12 times in less than a second, although he said afterwards that he was just really desperate for a wee.
2: (laughs) Ed? I think Wayne Sleep does hold that record for the crossing and uncrossing of legs in a single jump. You're right, he does, (laughs) yes. (laughs) 12 times?
4: The encha Yes, it is,
0: it is called the Entrechat Douze in uh, 1973. In seven tenths of a second, he did, you know, wiggled his legs in, in that way, beating yeah. the previous record of ten leg crossings and uncrossings held by famous Russian ballet dancer Veslav Nijinsky, which would have been an Entrechat Dice, presumably. Yeah. We're all now experts on entrechat. <laughs> entrechat means between cat, doesn't it? <laughs> I think they used to practice between cats, right? <laughs> or just have a cat afterwards. Yeah, exactly. to sort of regain your energy. Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, do an entrechat dos and then you can have another cat.
4: Ballet-trained Hollywood stars include Morgan Freeman, Harvey Keitel, and Digby, the biggest dog in the world.
3: <laughs> Charlie. Now, one of them.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take your pick.
3: Is going to be true. Take your pick. It was Harvey Keitel. No, it was no. Morgan no. Freeman. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Morgan Freeman studied dance for five years in San Francisco and New York, where he says he learnt the real discipline of the bar.
4: Having a dance partner of the opposite gender was illegal in Argentina until 1967. The tango originated as a dance between two men. The moves were much more combative than the sensual ones we know today. The partners would slap each other hard round the face and shout, You've been tangoed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tony. I do think that men in Argentina weren't allowed to dance with women before 1967.
0: That's what you think? That's what I... (laughs) Don't ridicule me. I'm just trying to... I don't like the way you do this. I'm clarifying your assertion. Well, of course it's that, yes. No, No, that's not true. Oh! (laughs) Ed? Uh, I believe that the tango
2: used to be a far more combative dance. Is that... um, uh, Is there a... (laughs) No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no. When I was growing up at our, at our local school discos, it used to be very
0: combative. It wasn't quite tango, but some of the dancers were incredibly combative. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I found many of the fights at my school were, were incredibly musical. <laughs> I, I believe that. Yeah. I, I believe that yeah,
2: it
4: was like West Side sensible.
2: Story. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Irish dancing was previously known as door dancing because whereas English and Scottish dancers would cavort in fields and barns and fling their arms above their heads, Irish dancers used more restrictive dance rules doors that had been taken off their hinges, largely by their English and Scottish invaders.
0: Tony,
1: <laughs> We all know Irish dancing, you know, they, they've got to stay in this little area to practice and I, I think that they did... You, you're, you're making the wrong kind of face. <laughs>
0: You're right, they did, yeah. Uh, Irish dancing was traditionally performed on doors, taken off their hinges, or on round barrel tops. I saw uh, a cast of
1: Riverdance after it had been on for quite a while, and they were on in London for about two weeks. And the bloke afterwards, I was talking to him, and he said, it doesn't matter, but you can be as fat as you like for uh, Irish dancing, because it's all about the bottom half of your body.
4: So you'd have right. tiny skinny legs. Yeah,
1: kind of... you could, as, long, as long as you were fit from the waist down mm. it didn't matter how fat you were. That's <laughs> because <laughs> when, when Ireland was occupied by British
2: rule mm-hmm. <clears throat> when we were being oppressed we weren't allowed to practice our cultural heritage so for various things like Irish dancing we banned so we'd do it behind a hedge. <laughs> <laughs> And we would nod as the invaders went by. <laughs> You're not <laughs> practicing your heritage, are you, Paddy? And we'd look, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be grinning,
0: because below the waist, whoo, chicken. <laughs> what an incredibly moving story. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Nature's most extreme mating dance is performed by the hoverfly. The female twirls frantically around the male, then when he's dizzy, she extracts the male's seed with her teeth before she impregnates herself and dances around him till he collapses. This ritual can be seen reenacted on the streets of Cardiff every Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: Tony. Ah. The, the hoverfly business. Oh, right. Not
0: the streets of Cardiff. No, no, oh, right. no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the hoverfly business. No. Oh. No. Although, there's a, a similar thing is true not not that but the hilara or dance fly does have a wing-waving mating dance which is accompanied by the male giving the female a gift of an insect wrapped in silk while she's busy unwrapping the gift the male mounts her mm. some lazy male dance flies have been known to offer females what looks like a gift wrapped insect and then attempt to complete the act of mating before she opens the gift bag and discovers there's nothing in it <laughs> uh, that's
3: that's exactly how I won my wife (laughs) (laughs) I
0: think the message you take from this is if you're on a date or dinner with a young lady you fancy try and mount her before you have to pay the bill (laughs) (laughs) no that's not the message sorry (laughs) as Tony rightly says that's that's not what Radio 4 is all about (laughs) got it all wrong
4: (laughs) Mm. No one loves to dance more than the French. So much so that in 16th century Strasbourg, they even suffered a plague of dancing, with many citizens dying of dance-related heart attacks and dehydration. In 1920s Paris, the dancers at the Moulin Rouge were so well paid that it was not uncommon for men to try and infiltrate their ranks. One of the most famous can-can dancers, La Goulou, was eventually discovered to be a man, so was rechristened Les Goulis.
3: <laughs> Charlie. Could I hazard a guess that the most famous can dancer was called La, or whatever the Lagooloo. first thing? Not Laguili. Not Laguili the <laughs> no. first thing.
4: Well, actually, I do have to say, no, Laguili was a famous can dancer. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realise no, what I've done rogue there. it's a Well, oh. I mean, but I said one of the most famous can-can dancers, Laguili, was eventually discovered to be a man. So
3: yeah. I, ah. I did
4: research. I did research. Yeah. I did a bit well, of research. Well, tell you what, I'll actually. let
3: you off if you let me off, yeah.
4: All <laughs>
0: right. Lad. Before you start letting each other off. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever that means. Just um, give
4: me a gift bag, Charlie. Just yeah. give me a gift um, bag. Actually, no.
1: we don't really need David. Do we? No, no. let's <laughs> just do it all ourselves. This, right? this, this is, is what they go they...
0: to the pub, mate. Have a drink. We'll carry on. Because <laughs> we're getting to the bazaar. Instead, they shot him. <laughs> um, no, I certainly certainly don't lose a point for that, Charlie.
4: The actor Charles Dance was originally christened Charleston Dance, but shortened it to Charles on joining Equity, much to the disappointment of his parents, Morris Dance and Nelly Disco.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lucy. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that round, Lucy, you've managed to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel. You deceptive woman. (laughs) Uh, The first one, of course, uh, is what I said about Morgan Freeman, him having studied dance for five years in San Francisco and New York. That's true. The second is that the tango originated as a dance between two men. (laughs) In um, Buenos Aires in the 19th century, it was like the Wild West. There were Mm -hmm. a lot more men than women. And so in order to have the lovely dancing that all we men desire, (laughs) uh, they had to dance with each other. Same, same um, was true of um, the cowboy dancing,
1: line dancing. Is that why line dancing happened? Well, line dancing, that's why they don't touch each other because there weren't any women
0: around, you see. Right. Yeah. Can
1: I get a point back for that <laughs> little
0: fact? No, that's a very interesting fact, mm-hmm. and you can get a point, you know, a separate point that doesn't count. <laughs> um, but yes, I, from my point, maybe maybe I'm about to say something sexist, but isn't the point of dancing for men that you get to sort of Touch women and impress them. <laughs> but they actually, the dancing in itself is not at all enjoyable, but, but I have in. no real insight into the frontier spirit, do no, I? And I, I the well, it, quicker...
3: was a, it was a showy offy sort of a thing. You see, if you've got a bar and there's only one woman in it, mm. the men will dance in a competitive nature, and she will go with the one who dances the best. <laughs> uh, so, is that what we're supposed to do? Yes! <laughs>
0: Just all when you're in a pub, you just dance competitively with other men. Yes, and then the the barmaid will pick the best one of us and mate.
2: I feel like we're trying to explain the concept of dancing to a robot. (laughs) I feel like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway,
4: dance for us now.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know why you're applauding because that's not going to happen. <laughs> Except in honor of my Irish roots, I've been dancing the whole time <laughs> the third truth that Lucy managed to smuggle past the panel is that uh, in 16th century Strasbourg they suffered a plague of dancing with many citizens dying of dance related heart attacks and dehydration this was in 1518 around 400 citizens became afflicted with what is now regarded as an outbreak of mass hysteria and as many as 50 people danced themselves to death <laughs> no. Now, as you'll have known from the previous conversations must... I don't really understand how that could have they happened. must have
1: been so Horny
0: those Frenchies (laughs) yeah according to your theory well, I mean does that sound so implausible to you? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that means Lucy that you've scored three points (laughs) Next up is Ed Byrne Ed recently appeared with Tony Hawks in the film of Tony's book round island with a fridge So it's quite possible there are more people here tonight that were in it than have seen it (laughs) Ed, your subject is worms. Invertebrate animals with soft, elongated bodies that are round or flattened and usually without limbs. If you were to dig up all the worms in your garden and lay them end to end, your wife would leave
2: you. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the term digging for worms is a euphemism for a number of different pursuits, including demolition site clearances, grave robbing catching internet sex predators, and performing varicose vein surgery. If you cut an earthworm into as many as eight pieces, each piece is capable of growing into a separate, fully formed earthworm. If you were to plat four or more tapeworms together, you would get a rope with a greater strength than a bungee cord. And if you were to take an earthworm and clean the dirt off it by putting it in your mouth, then spitting it into a jar full of other earthworms, and then label that jar, my friends... <laughs> Then keep that jar under your bed until all the worms die. Your name is Keith, and you used to live three doors down from me until your parents had to move house because of that thing that happened with the dog that nobody talks about. (laughs) The nematode worm is the second most studied animal of all time, just below reality show contestants. As a result, nematodes were the first animals in space. The first animals to have their genetic code sequenced and the first animals to be given full membership of the Royal Institute. Tony,
1: I think that uh, they were the first animals to have their gene thing sequenced or
0: whatever that was. You're right, they <sighs> were. <Yeah. clears throat> yes, this, is because, this is because the nematode is one of the simplest animals. As humans, we share 75% of our DNA with both nematode worms and pumpkins. So I don't feel so bad about what I did to that pumpkin, now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you were closer than I thought.
3: That <laughs> could have been your sister. <laughs> <clears throat> Studies
2: of nematodes reveal that they are also fond of nicotine and, once addicted, suffer terrible withdrawal symptoms. These include swearing, punching subordinates, and smashing up edit suites. Oh, no, wait, that's TV executives. <laughs> It was once thought that earthworms fell from the sky at night.
1: (coughs) Tony. I think they did used to think earthworms (coughs) fell from the sky. There's lots of cases in history of all these sort of things falling from the sky.
0: And I'm convinced of this. (laughs) You're right.
1: Oh!
0: It was once thought that they fell from the sky. Uh, This is because they're often seen early in the morning following rain. Other phenomena
2: that were at one time thought to be the product of worm activity include the holes in cheese, tooth decay,
0: and most of the scripts of True Blood Season (laughs) 4. Thank you, Ed. Um, And at the end of that round, Ed, you've also managed to smuggle three truths past the rest of the panel, which are that worms can become addicted to nicotine and suffer terrible withdrawal symptoms. Uh, the second truth is that digging for worms is a euphemism for varicose vein surgery. <laughs> Sorry. And the third truth is that it was a widely held belief in Europe, even into the 20th century, that toothache and tooth decay were caused by a tooth worm. This belief was probably caused by the worm-like tubular structures found in teeth. Uh, and that means, Ed, you 've scored three points. Now it's the turn of Charlie Higson. Charlie worked for a while as a plasterer before quitting to become a writer and performer on the hugely successful Farce Show. The show is remembered fondly by many, although not by Mrs Henderson of Clapham, who is still waiting for him to finish her kitchen extension. (laughs) Charlie has written several books featuring the school days of a young James Bond. Appropriately, Charlie, your subject is James Bond, the fictional British secret agent created by writer Ian Fleming. Off
3: you go, Charlie. James Bond... The very name is enough to set everyone's heart racing, and it seems Bond Mania... <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Ed. <laughs> well,
0: everyone's heart racing?
4: Mine, mine's not. There,
0: there you are. go. Come on.
4: Come and feel it, if you
2: like.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Bond Mania literally knows no bounds. Not only is James... <laughs>
2: well, oh. I mean, literally,
3: <laughs>
2: a mania cannot know anything. I wouldn't mind if you hadn't said David, literary. Can you, take,
3: <laughs> can you take control and get him to shut up so I can carry on, please? Well, I don't oh, think gosh. we need David uh, to do no,
1: that. Think... <laughs> we could just do that amongst
3: ourselves. Not only is James the most popular boy's name in England, it's the most popular girl's name, too. <laughs> There are James Bond theme parks, an official James Bond clothing range. There's a mountain in the Alps named James Bond. There's even a minor planet named after him. Lucy. Mountain in the
0: Alps. Nope. OK. Oh. OK. Tony,
1: this you're going to say is too late. Shall I do it anyway or, or, or not? I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it was way back in Lucy's round. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, no, James, most popular name in England. No, you are too late. Um, which is lucky for you because it isn't. Oh, so. good, that's good. how fair I am. Oh yeah, Yo, I like having you here. In Thanks, to, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to the fair-minded chair bot yeah. who doesn't understand <laughs> dancing or love. <laughs> Lucy.
4: I'm going to just keep going. Minor planet. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. thank God for
0: that. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it was, uh, it was named, uh, Minor Planet was named after James Bond by Czech astronomers who decided the name was fitting given the asteroid's number 9007.
3: Ian Fleming got the idea for James Bond after watching the film Doctor No. <laughs> 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 Fleming's brilliant book titles didn't come to him easily. His working title for Live and Let Die was The Undertaker's Wind. And at one time, he wanted to call Goldfinger simply Peter. <laughs> The name of the Bond villain Blofeld was inspired by the father of the English cricket commentator (laughs) Henry Blofeld, who Fleming was at Eton with.
0: Lucy.
4: That is true, it was inspired by that Blofeld.
0: You're right, it was. Yeah, well done. (laughs) Fleming often used the names of people he knew, including Scaramanga, who was named after George Scaramanga, with whom he was also at school, and Goldfinger, who was named after the architect Erno Goldfinger.
3: Mm. But when Fleming was accused of giving his characters names with rude double meanings, he proved that they were all genuine names taken from the London telephone directory. He also insisted that the rude name of the little village in Kent, where he said Bond had grown up, Pet Bottom, was also a real place. Lucy.
4: Sounds Kentish. (laughs) (laughs) Leave
3: him alone.
0: (laughs) Um, You're absolutely right. It is a genuine Kentish place. Bond's obituary in You Only Live Twice reveals that he grew up with his aunt in Pet Bottom, a small settlement five miles south of Canterbury. Charlie.
3: Since Sean Connery quit, as Bond, hundreds of unlikely people over the years have been considered by the producers to play the part, including Harold Wilson, who was turned down for being a little bit metrosexual. (laughs) Footballer George Best, who felt he couldn't keep up with Bond's excessive drinking requirements... (laughs) The Arctic explorer, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, who was dismissed for having a face like a farmer. <laughs> and Judy Dench, who turned out to be a woman. <laughs>
0: Tony.
1: I think George Best might have been put up for the part of James Bond at some point. He wasn't. Oh. no. Plausible, though, wasn't
3: it?
0: Yeah, I mean... Can't I mean... have been
1: any worse than George Lazenby. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and the toupee that Sean Connery wore in all his Bond movies sold for $25,000. It was bought by Roger Moore, (laughs) who wore it in all 36 of his outings as Bond and has since been passed down from star to star until Daniel Craig refused to wear it, preferring to sport a vintage Bruce Forsyth crown topper. (laughs) Thank you, Charlie. Uh, And at
0: the end of that round, Charlie, you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, which are that the working title for Live and Let Die was The Undertaker's Wind. (laughs) Uh, which is the name given to the prevailing airflow in Jamaica, where Fleming wrote many of his Bond books. (laughs) And the second truth is that despite having little acting experience, Sir Ranulph Fiennes got through to the last six to play Bond after Sean Connery quit. But producer Cubby Broccoli said his hands were too big and he had a face like a farmer. (laughs) And that means, Charlie, you've scored two points. (laughs) Fleming named James Bond after a famous ornithologist of the time, just as well. Somehow it just wouldn't have been the same hearing Sean Connery say the name's Oddie. Bill Oddie. (laughs) Which brings us to the final scores. In fourth place, with minus one point, we have Tony Hawks. (laughs) In third place, with one point, it's Charlie Hickson. In second place, with two points, it's Ed Byrne. And in first place with an unassailable four points, is this week's winner, Lucy Porter. <laughs> That's about it for this week. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists
3: Charlie Higson, Lucy Porter, Ed Byrne and Tony Hawkes. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash, and the producer was John Naismith. It was a
0: random production for BBC Radio 4.